you will bow your heads with me and we will pray. Our precious Heavenly Father, Lord, you see me here as a young person, a servant of you. You know my deficiencies. You know my selfish desires. You know me better than anyone. And yet you've selected me this evening to preach to your people. I pray that as you, as we invite your spirit into this auditorium, may all distractions be taken away. May angels feel, fill the empty seats. And may you speak through me tonight, Lord, like you never have before. Not so people can leave here tonight and say, Justin preached a powerful sermon, but so that they can leave here tonight and say they saw Jesus and they learned more about your love. Lord, be with us as we dive into your scriptures and may you give us a new look at life tomorrow. I humbly pray these things in your precious name. Amen. It was not that long ago that I was at ASI Youth for Jesus in Columbus, Ohio. We were going out door to door. We were simply inviting people to the meetings that we were having. I was teamed up with one of the younger Youth for Jesus, and I was considered, I guess, a senior Youth for Jesus, if there is such hierarchy in, in Youth for Jesus terms. We were going out door to door. We were knocking on doors. And to be honest, it wasn't going that well. People were meeting us with rejection. They were slamming the door in our face. And it, and it was getting a little discouraging. And I was speaking that night, so I, I honestly thought to myself a couple times, you know what, my time is, might even be better spent preparing for my sermon. I was about ready to give it quits. We came to the last cul-de-sac. We went through the houses. We knocked on the doors. Not that many people came to the door. And when they did, they pretty much slammed it in our face. And we got to the end of the cul-de-sac. And the young lady I was with said, Justin, we need to go back to that one house. I was thinking to myself, we went there once. She, she or he didn't come to the door. Why on earth do we need to go there again? But I was the senior youth, so I couldn't say that out loud. We went back to the door because of her persistence. We knocked on the door, and a young, middle-aged, I'd say, lady came to the door by the name of Kathleen. Kathleen opened the door, let us come in, and, and she began to say with tears in her eyes, I'm so happy you came. I'm so happy you stopped by my house this afternoon. You see what? I, I, I've been in and out of jail. I'm a terrible mother. I have three kids and I couldn't be any worse to them. I'm addicted to cocaine. I'm addicted to heroin. To be honest, I've been ready to call it quits on life. And Kathleen said, with tears welling up in her eyes, this morning I got out of my bed, and as if one last time, I cried out to God, God, send someone to my door today to tell me the good news about you. We entered that home. We had a Bible study. 
We invited her to the meetings, and Kathleen came night after night. She made decision after decision. I shudder to think what would have happened if that unsenior youth wouldn't have been with us. If we hadn't have gone back to that door to meet with Kathleen, I believe her eternal destiny would have been much different. Turn with me to the book of John. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. We will spend the majority, we will spend probably the balance of our evening inside the book of John. I like John because John, I believe, sized up Matthew, sized up Mark, sized up Luke, read through them, and put things in his account of Jesus that he believed had the capacity, had believed he had the capability to change the world. So we find things in the book of John that we don't find in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. We're going to study one of those unique stories tonight. John 4 and verse 4. John 4 and verse 4. Are you with me? John 4 and verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, if you read this text quickly enough, you could miss a valuable lesson. I would submit to you, what in the world was Jesus doing going through Samaria? You see, at the time of Jesus, a bitter hatred existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. You remember that in this time, if a Jew wanted to go to the other side of Samaria, it was common for them to take the long route around the city so that they wouldn't have to associate themselves any with the Samaritans. So why was Jesus going through the city of Samaria? Some could speculate Jesus was on some sort of a time crunch. He needed to get to the other side, and thus he was going straight through his shortest route possible. That might be possible. Some may say that Jesus wanted to prove a point, that he wanted to rise above these ridiculous racial traditions and associate himself with the Samaritans. I would argue that's even more possible, but in my mind's eye, I picture it a little differently. In my mind's eye, I picture a woman waking up that morning. That same morning, Jesus was walking through the desert. I picture this unnamed woman almost unable to rise out of her bed. Society has deemed her a social outcast. Her sinful ways are unsurpassable. Nothing good can ever come of her life. She lays there in her bed hopeless, meaningless, empty, and hollow inside. And as if to risk it all, I picture in my mind's eye her risking it all one last time. I see an unnamed woman kneeling beside her bed that morning as she awakes. Tears streaming down her face, she cries out for God to reveal himself to her. She cries out for God to give her hope, to give her a purpose, to give her a sense of destiny. And as she rises that morning, she rises with a smile, with that blessed assurance because Jesus is her. See, friends, the God I serve is not a God of accidents and coincidental encounters. 
Jesus was at that well for a reason. He was there to answer a prayer and aid in a heavenly objective. So my question I would propose tonight to us is simplistic in nature. How many people have crossed our path who woke up in the morning crying out for God? How many people have walked by us when all heaven was waiting for us to rise to our true purpose? How many people has God orchestrated for you to meet so you could share the gospel with? God is not a God of accidents and coincidental encounters. He's placed you here on this earth for a reason, for a specific purpose. John 4 and verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. It was noon. The sun was high up in the sky, making the heat almost unbearable. And we find the Savior of the world fairly exhausted. He's just returned from Judea where his own people rejected him. It's been a while since he and his disciples have had any food, so hunger is setting in his stomach. The trip here to the well was dusty. He's sweaty. He's dirty. He's physically tired. You can kind of feel that, that dry, moist, not moist, that dry feeling you get in your mouth when it's been a while since you've had water. The wind has saturated him. I'm not going to point any fingers tonight, but most of us in this room, if we were in the sandals of Jesus, would be rather grumpy. But our Savior of the world was there waiting with open arms for his children. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. An unnamed woman in the Bible enters the scene. An unnamed woman who through the ages has changed countless lives. An unnamed woman who has taken lives lived for the enemy and turned them to their creator. An unnamed woman who has taken lives out of darkness and turned them in the path of light. An unnamed woman enters the scene and without a doubt... This woman's life has changed many people. We don't know a lot about this woman, but here's what we can glean from this passage. She's come to the well alone. It's entirely possible that she's just a loner. She likes to be alone. Nothing wrong with that. It's possible that she's a social outcast. As we find out later about her personal life, it might not be up to par with the rest of the Samaritans. So maybe society has somewhat cast her out. And we can also conclude that she is a poor person. She doesn't have someone go to the well for her, so she's not someone with worldly wealth. And the final thing we can can glean from this passage is that she is of Samaritan descent. 4 and verse 7, the second part. Jesus said to her, give me a drink of what? About 8% of you are with me tonight. Jesus said, give me a drink of what? Water. 
Jesus asks the woman for a drink of water. Four short words, Jesus is able to transcend traditional culture and put ridiculous racial traditions to the side. We already talked about the intense hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans, but also it was uncommon for men to talk to women without their husbands present. Clearly, Jesus did not subscribe to the theory that one race or one sex was better than another. The woman questioned why Jesus, a Jew, would ask her for a drink. And we find Jesus' response in verse 10. Jesus answered to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The creator of the universe takes an average conversation, one in which physical needs are being addressed and appeals to her spiritual need. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw the water with and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? The woman completely misses the real appeal. You can picture her face kind of puzzled, almost impatient. Obviously, sir, I'm here. I'd love some water. It's hot. And frankly, that's the reason I came to the well this evening. But uh, you've got nothing to draw it with. How can you get me this living water? On top of that, sir, we can find out in verse 12, do you think you are better than than Jacob, who God gave us this well? The woman tries to reflect on her past experiences, on her ancestors' past experiences, and she tries to draw from the relationship Jacob had with Christ. She says, Jesus, actually she didn't know it was Jesus at this point. She says, sir, you're probably just not good enough to get me the water. But what a blessed Savior we serve. He does not give up on us after one attempt. He wasn't even willing that one could perish. He felt the holy purpose bestowed on him. He sensed the woman woke up, ready to call it quits on the human race, and he knew exactly what she needed. You will remember the relevant question for us to ponder tonight. Who has God put in your life who is facing the same struggles as this woman at the well? Who has God entrusted your abilities with to bestow true hope, true change inside? Jesus appeals to her again in verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The wheels are kind of clicking inside her head. She's contemplating this. Thinking only of her physical needs, she gives in. All right, sir, if it is water, and if I will never be thirsty again, hand it over. I hate the walk to the well. I hate the dry feeling I get in my mouth. I don't even like the taste of water. I'll take it. Give me some of this special sauce that I'll never get thirsty again. 
And as Jesus takes inventory of the situation, I'm sure he, sure he could perceive this woman was in desperate need of a savior. He knew she was longing for hope, longing for a better tomorrow, waiting for something to live for. So Jesus leaves the analogies and moves in to doctrine. John 4 and verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had how many? 12% with me tonight. You have had how many? Five husbands, and the one you are with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. I want to analyze these three verses, but before we do that, before we go there, a parenthesis. There seems to exist inside of mainstream, mainstream Christianity a fallacy, a misleading notion that doctrine won't change lives. Mainstream Christianity feels it is their job, almost their entitlement, to soften the message. A myth that their sole purpose is to apologize for what is in the Bible and what it teaches. And the edges of this foolishness is moving inside the sacred walls of our Seventh-day Adventist church. I believe Jesus understood a key point. The Holy Spirit's inspiration into holy men and women was relevant in the time of Jesus. But guess what? That same Holy Spirit had you and me in mind when the Bible was penned. The Bible was relevant a thousand years ago. The Bible is relevant today. And if God chooses not to come for another thousand years, the Bible will be relevant then. God knew what he was doing when he wrote his love letter to his fallen race. And I would even go so far as to say that the same critics that are around today were just as vocal during Jesus' time. Jesus, you don't understand. Accept the woman for who she is. Love her. Don't use any type of convicting material with her. Jesus, your approach is too old-fashioned, too traditional. It may have worked for Moses, maybe for Joshua, maybe for Ezra. But that type of approach isn't going to work for A.D. Christians. But Jesus knew better. He knew the Bible was relevant. As Christians, as Seventh-day Adventists, it is time for us to take a bold, biblical, refreshed stand. The Bible is just as relevant today as it has ever been. There is nothing, absolutely nothing in the Bible that we should apologize for. It's so arrogant. So absolutely ridiculous for us as Christians to state we have more insight than God. To say that the Bible is irrelevant for the postmodern mind or whatever term you want to give to people that you don't think are ready for the Bible. Instead of the Bible, take our feelings, take our experiences, take our love. 
as if our feelings and love have more changing power than God and his inspired word. But rest assured, liberal bloggers will continue to argue why the Bible is irrelevant. Quote-unquote Adventist publications will write articles arguing the faults and cracks inside our holy scriptures. And until Jesus comes again, men and women, sincere and unsincere, will attack the fundamental beliefs of our church one by one. Now more than ever, God is calling for a group, an army of young and old, black and white, educated and uneducated, who will stand for the doctrines who will stand for the doctrines in the Bible, who will unapologetically teach these beautiful principles to others. Close parentheses. Understand, I'm not discounting the need for us to act with love. Our love and respect combined with the changing power of our living God is dynamic. You'll remember 1 Peter 3 and verse 15 be prepared to give an account, a defense for everything you believe. If you're a Seventh-day Adventist, be ready to defend it from the Bible. But do so in love and respect. I think we've belabored this point enough, but I think it's important. I'm not even talking about necessarily the, the, the debate between creation and evolution. Because as soon as we're past that, the devil will bring something else into a, our existence. We need to root ourselves in the scriptures. If you are building your house on love and experiences of other people, you're building your house on a sand, in the sand. God needs us to root ourselves in the scriptures. Incidentally, if I can just make a little commercial. My father-in-law, Rick Yeager, is doing a seminar tomorrow at 2 o'clock. He's going to go over some more of these things in detail. I would urge you, if you're a leader of our church, if you're an active member of our church, please be there. If you can't be there, you can get it online after it happens. But it, God needs us to be biblically rooted, friends. It's not the, the thesis by my, of my message by any means, but it's important. And I think it's particularly interesting that Jesus injects a little bit of doctrine, a little bit of conviction into the life of the woman at the well. Jesus said to her, it may be legally you don't have a husband, but actually, biblically speaking, you have five. And the woman sidesteps the conviction, putting the question back on Jesus. Sir. I perceive you are a prophet. The woman then goes on to explain the difference in worship style and brings up an age-old rub between the Samaritans and the Jews. See, you will remember during Ezra's time when the temple was being rebuilt, the Samaritans approached the Jews and said, we're here, we'd love to help rebuild this temple, can you use us? That privilege was denied the Samaritans, and so the, the Samaritans, somewhat irritated by the response, went back to their place, built a rival temple at Mount Gerizim, and began to worship there. So the woman says, listen, Jesus, the Jews worship in their temple. They think it's right. The Samaritans worship 
excuse me, she didn't say Jesus because she didn't know it was him yet. She said, excuse me, sir, the Jews worship in their temple. They think it's right. They think that's what will save them. The Samaritans worship in their temple. They think it's right. They think that's what will save them. So uh, why don't you weigh in on that? And it's interesting to me because we find Jesus' response to her is almost identical to what he gives to Nicodemus the chapter before. Essentially, his response is this. The temple will not save you. The place of worship will not save you. The location of the temple will not save you. The style of worship will not save you. The religion that comes from God is the only religion that can lead to God. It is the religion that causes us to be born again. The woman sensing she's out of what she believes to be legitimate excuses tries to procrastinate. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. I've read about it in Deuteronomy. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. I want to interject just a little footnote into our story. When it comes to us allowing God to use us to our full potential, we serve the same God as the woman at the well. In verse 12, we read about the woman believed that God did incredible things in the past. With Jacob and God's relationship combined, pretty much the whole countryside was given to our people. Oh, God was incredible in the past, you'll understand, sir. And, and then she projects into the future. Listen, one day the Messiah will come and it is going to be awesome. I mean, all poof, all answers to our questions will be all questions to our answers will come about. The Messiah will come. It will be incredible. And yet many of us serve that same God. You can read about Jesus in the Bible. Oh, it is awesome. I tell you what, oceans were being parted. Whales were swallowing humans. Lame were walking. Blind were seeing. Lions were being shut up. I mean, God was awesome in the past. And oh boy. Just you wait and see. He has some real doozies in store for the future. You'd better look out in the later rain. Jesus will come. Just before Jesus comes again, miracles will start happening. People will be joined in the faith by the second. God will be awesome in the future. But we forget God wants to use us in the present. We forget he has an awesome work for us to do now. I don't want to belabor this point, but I think it is very important for our study tonight. God is alive today, and he wants you to start acting like it tonight. God is alive today, in the present, doing awesome, incredible things, and he wants you to start acting like it tonight. The woman at the well woke up that morning feeling hopeless feeling like the world had turned its back on her and she was in need of a savior. Jesus was there to answer the call. There's a world full of women and men just like her who woke up this morning. Will you be there to answer the call? Verse 26 
Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. She starts to project in the future the Messiah will come. It will be incredible. Jesus says, you who you, you, who you are speaking of, the person you are speaking of, I am he. Verse 27, then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? The disciples came back food in hand only to find Jesus talking to a woman and not just any woman, a Samaritan woman. It was almost appalling for the disciples. You can kind of picture them huddled together dumbfounded look on their face, wondering why in the world Jesus would talk to a Samaritan woman. But the Bible tells us the disciples said nothing. Now, when I first read through this story, I always just assumed the disciples said nothing because of the racial divide. They were holding true to their Jewish heritage and way of life. But as I studied the story more and reenacted the moments in my mind, I began to wonder about something. Allow me to speculate with you a little bit this evening. But understand something before we do that. My speculation is not to reshape doctrine or, or to add a 29th fundamental belief. It's purely a question that I think we can apply to our lives as Christians living today. Amen? The disciples were sent off that afternoon to retrieve food for their master. It was okay for the Jews to associate with, with Samaritans if they were buying something, if they were seeking to gain something, certainly not for any kind of friendship, but it would be okay for the disciples to walk into Samaria and buy food for their master. Now, while it is not true I am educated in all the streets and pathways to and from Samaria, I would assume that there was only one pathway that led from the well, Jacob's well, into the city of Samaria. You're following me so far? If you can assume that there was only one pathway, you can conclude that the disciples passed right by this same woman into their trip in the city. The same woman that woke up that morning to heartache and despair. That same woman who longed to hear something in her life that would give her purpose. The disciples knew the good news. They would have had the opportunity to change her life, but they missed it. So in my speculation, I would ponder this. Did the disciples miss her? Did they miss her? Was the God of divine appointments trying to lead the woman into the pathway of the disciples? You can kind of grapple with how that somewhat awkward meeting would have went. A woman comes into the site. She's not normal based on their parameters. She is a different race. Society has cast her out. It's completely possible that she was dressed a little more scantily. Maybe her hair was a different color than they were used to. Maybe piercings existed where they shouldn't have. And the justification in their mind is this. She would have no interest in God. No point even telling her about Jesus. 
Friends, if we label someone as having no interest in God, we realistically doubt the power of God to change their life. It's not about if they do or do not have interest in God. It's about if God has the power to change their life. Did the disciples miss the woman at the well because they doubted the power of God? And an even more important and relevant question is this. Who have we missed because we doubted the power of God? Who woke up this morning, met the day with an ugly outfit, combed their pink hair, loaded their face with jewelry, and fell to their knees crying out for God to put someone in their life to show them purpose and meaning? Was that purpose and person intended to show them meaning, you or I? Have you ever bypassed someone with the good news because they probably wouldn't have any interest? Have you given up on a family member, neighbor, or co-worker because they appear to have no interest? God is calling for us to be messengers for him, not to weed out whom we think does or does not have interest in God. Desire of Ages, page 194. The gospel invitation is not to be narrowed down and presented only to a select few who we suppose will do us honor if they accept it. The message is to be given to all. Not to be narrowed down to who we think does or does not have interest. The message is to be given to all. But you say, maybe she was dressed normal. What then would have caused the disciples to miss her? Speculate in your mind's eye this. They meet on the dusty road. The disciples collaborate together, and it is determined that the work they are on is more important than speaking with the woman. It's a shame that all of Samaria could have been lost because of the resumes of the disciples, this perceived importance they thought they were doing. We're getting food for Jesus. Certainly that is more important than speaking with a woman. Could it have been that the disciples felt they were above reaching out to this woman? So the question begs to be asked, who of you and I miss because we assume our work is more important than a lowly woman or man? We're the president of GYC, ASI. What difference will it make if one boy or girl we reach out to when we're organizing such an army? I'm the CEO, CFO, COO of a multi-million dollar company that donates millions to the work. Should I be seeking out a woman? I'm a doctor on the verge of solving cancer. What's a woman to me? You must understand, I'm the director of Arise, Amazing Facts. It is written, my time is more valuable than a woman. I'm the president of a conference, a union, a division, or even the GC. My work is too great. The disciples could have been willing that all of Samaria would have perished because they were on a mission they thought was greater. Have we created such positions among us that all of New York City, Los Angeles, Seattle, or Phoenix could be lost? 
Perhaps you've been on a mission like the disciples that you believed was a little more important than a woman. Perhaps tonight God is calling you to reach your full potential, his full potential he has for you. Their thoughts, Ellen White speaking of the disciples, their thoughts were fixed upon a great work to be done in the future. They did not see that right around them was a harvest to be gathered. But through the woman who they despised, a whole city full was brought to hear the Savior. Their thoughts were fixed upon a great work to be done in the future. Again, don't let my speculation get in the way of you missing the point or the appeal. I'm not pretending to have extra insight into the Bible. It is entirely possible the disciples never even crossed paths with this woman. But I believe the questions posed are still relevant, and I believe them to be extremely convicting. We must take a stand on these points. God needs a church that will not doubt his power. God needs you not to assume who does or does not need him in their life. And without a doubt, God wants a generation who is not concerned with the hierarchy of life. Presidents, directors, and all of God's people need to start concerning themselves with God's true purpose for their lives. Reaching a starving nation, getting serious about getting this gospel message to the entire world. See, friends, a day is coming in the near future when many Christians, many Seventh-day Adventists, and possibly even ASI members will be silent. Jesus will come again. A glorious day it will be. Lightning will flash from the east to the west. A thousand times ten thousand angels will fill the sky. Crippled men will walk. The blind will see. Our bodies will become perfect again. Families lonely because of death will be reunited in the clouds. Husbands and wives separated by tragedy will embrace midair. It will be an incredible, undescribable a day for many, and yet a tragedy for others. And their Christian Seventh-day Adventists and maybe even ASI members will face co-workers, neighbors, and even family members. As the saints are taken in the cloud, those who will reign, those who will remain, will question our priorities. Our foolishness and stupidity will plague our very existence. And as if a common thread of unity, those who remain will stand gazing in disbelief and disgust. They will wonder, you knew and you didn't tell us. You knew he would come again and you never breathe a word to me. Friends, our only response will be silence. Did the disciples get that same look, maybe even that same question at Jacob's well? 
Perhaps the woman sat stunned in disbelief at the return of the disciples. The very men who knew Jesus the best would walk by and say nothing. How could it happen? How could it be? You knew and you didn't tell me. You knew about Jesus and you never breathed a word to me? Perhaps the woman sat stunned in disbelief. Maybe Jesus stopped at that well that high noon not only to save Samaria, but to teach the disciples a lesson. Maybe God is so great that he knew Jesus needed to stop there to teach you and I a lesson tonight. Perhaps we find at the well a small reenactment of the second coming. That moment in time where Christians, where Seventh-day Adventists are held accountable who they did and did not tell the gospel to. God is calling for a generation of followers who unashamedly tell others about Christ. That no matter the cost, no matter the sacrifice, no matter the... Excuse me, no ma nothing in life would stop us from leaving any stone unturned. No co-worker, no neighbor, no family member is left untold. A woman woke up that morning full of doubt, full of fear, and Jesus answered the holy calling to tell her the good news. Who has Jesus placed in your life to alter their eternal destiny? What woman at the well is God calling you to reach tonight? The woman was excited about what she learned at Jacob's well that hot sunny day. So excited, in fact, that the Bible tells us she left the pitcher at the well. She was filled with hope. She was filled with a sense of belonging. She was filled with a sense of purpose and destiny. She ran off to Samaria not knowing much, not knowing how to give an eloquent Bible study, not knowing how to get up in front of people and preach, not knowing how to go through the Bible and explain all 28 fundamental beliefs. But the Bible tells us in John verse 6, excuse me, chapter 6, chapter 4 and verse 39, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. In order for Jesus to reach the city of Samaria, he had to reach one. The city was conquered for Jesus because Jesus was able to reach one. It's a shame that we've come to a place where it doesn't seem exciting for us to tell of just one being reached. You've heard the reports before where someone says we went out door to door, went into the city, and, and we only had three baptisms. We only had one. We only had two. One was enough for the Savior of the world. I think it should be enough for us. The work for Christ should not feel that he cannot speak, excuse me, the workers for Christ should not feel that he cannot speak with the same earnestness to a few hearers as to a large company. 
There may be only one to hear the message, but who can tell how far-reaching its influence will be? God is calling for us to not weed out the people who we think do and do not want Jesus in their life. Pink hair, yellow hair, jewelry, tattoos, doesn't matter. God has the power to change their life. God is calling for a generation not concerned with the hierarchy of life. Doesn't matter if you're a president of something. Doesn't matter if you're a director of something. God is calling all of us as a generation, as an army, young and old, to reach the world for him one person at a time. God is calling for us to get our priorities straight. Did the disciples miss her that hot, sunny day on their way to Samaria? I don't know. But a day is coming when you and I will be held accountable who we did miss or did not miss. A woman woke up that morning ready to call it quits on life, crying out to meet a Savior. Jesus was there to answer the call. For the rest of your life, men and women will wake up in the morning. Tears will stream down their face. They will cry out for God as if one last time. Send me someone who can share the hope with me. Send me someone who will give me the gospel message. Send me someone who will give me something to live for. Friends, will you and I be there to answer the call? This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI. Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.